Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today we will rebroadcast a program that was aired almost two years ago. It was a conversation I had with South Carolina writer Pat Conroy. Pat died a week ago today on March the 4th from pancreatic cancer. He was one of South Carolina's great literary figures, but he also was a personal friend. Among his many works were The Water is Wide, The Great Santini, The Prince of Tides, and The Death of Santini. The book we're going to be discussing in the program is My Reading Life. It was one of his last works. It was recorded at Township Auditorium in Columbia as part of the One Book, One Columbia program sponsored by the Richland Library. We'll air that conversation, but first, your NPR news break. Today, we remember Pat Conroy in this rebroadcast. This is a conversation that was recorded live at Township Auditorium in Columbia as part of the One Book, One Columbia reading program sponsored by the Richland Library. Pat, we've done this before, and one of the first questions that people ask, and particularly for these young writers out here, what was the one thing you would recommend that they do if they want to aspire to be a writer? You know, my mother, mom, we're not sure she graduated from high school. We know she went to high school. My grandmother and grandfather went to third grade. But when I was growing up, my mother read to me and my older sister every night, and she got it in the heads that we were going to be Southern writers with great emphasis on the word Southern. Now, my father was a Chicago Irish Yankee who did not read, and I do not know if he could read. And I don't even know if he read any of the books I ever wrote about him. (laughs) But, you know, I had this powerful force in this mother who, you know, when I write today, I still hear her voice. And, you know, she had this southern, she was from the hills of Alabama and Georgia. And she would always say, now, Pat, it made me so proud of you if you would be a writer. And, of course, then the great Santini came out. And her pride diminished overnight. (laughs) And my father went crazy, and both members of my family went nuts. And I had a grandmother. My dad's mother and father never spoke to me again. That was it. And I learned very early that writing had, you know, severe consequences. But my mother betraying me, and and what she said was wonderful. She said, in the great Santini, you made your father the strongest figure. I was by far the strongest person in that family. I was the one. Everything that happened in that family was because of me. He was too dumb to come up against me. And you weren't a good enough writer to see it. (laughs) And I said, Mom, I saw it, but I needed you perfect for the great Santini. I needed you to be the way I thought about you as a boy. And that was perfect. And I had to have that. But I said, Mom, I'll get to you later on down the line. (laughs) And that's a promise. Well, you more or less did in Prince of Tides. She's there. She's a strong character. But if you had renamed the great Santini for your mother, what would you have called it? The idiot woman who married the great Santini. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I could never figure that out, you know, in growing up. I said, this beautiful mom and, you know... Southern, how you, and how y'all. And then we have this lump of, you know, solid protein, a blunt instrument. And that was dad. And it always, you know, was funny to me when I'd see other kids and their fathers and, you know, their fathers hugging them and stuff like this. And for some reason, I never got that. My brothers and sisters, we never got that. And, you know, for whatever, and then we moved every year. Being in the Marine Corps, we, they would send us 
So we grew up on federal property. So when I finally got to South Carolina, I said, Mom, it was my 23rd move, and I was 15 when I came here. And I said, Mom, I ain't moving again. <laughs> you know, I don't care if I have to bury myself in Beaufort. I'm not moving. And she said, son, why don't you make Beaufort your hometown? You know, we're going to be here for two years at least, and this could be your hometown. And because Dad has served America, you can choose any place in the country, and they've got to take you. So poor Beaufort, <laughs> through no fault of their own, I latched like a barnacle onto that town, Walter. And through good and bad, whether they wanted it or not, and it is so much of an attachment that a guidebook came out 10 years ago in which I'm listed as a native of Beaufort. <laughs> and my neighbors on the point could remember me riding my tricycle when I was a little boy. <laughs> so fiction and nonfiction have certainly merged you know, in these places. They accepted you, and you attached yourself to Buford because you talk about influence Thomas Wolfe had on you, and you said you sort of kept tabs on introductory paragraphs and closing paragraphs of books. I sort of do the same thing, and one opening paragraph that I even cite in my history of South Carolina is my wound is geography. It is also my anchorage, my port of call. I grew up slowly beside the tides and marshes of Colleton, the opening prologue to Prince of Tides. You talk about Wolf grabbing somebody with the opening lines of Look Homeward Angel. My friend, you grabbed at least South Carolinians because you may have been born elsewhere and moved 23 times, but I think there's pluff mud in your blood. You know, I, I stole that line from a Hallmark card. <laughs> it was... No, and I wrote that when I was in Rome, Italy. I was missing South Carolina so badly. And I always, when I'm away from South Carolina, when I'm away from the low country, I'm always telling myself, why did I leave? You know, what was I looking for? You know, why did I not just stay my whole life there? And it has been, you know, absolutely central to my whole writing life because I came to this place when I was a kid I can't tell you how wonderful Buford was, Buford High School. I have this king of the world principal, Bill Dufford. I've got English teachers like Gene Norris and Millen Ellis. And I then go to the Citadel and there are five English majors in my class because being an English major at the Citadel in my time was an open admission I was gay. But I have these teachers that love me, and they encourage me to write. And Gene Norris would come up, and he'd introduce me to people. He introduced me to um, the Poet Laureate of South Carolina. He was the one that gave me Thomas Wolfe's Look Homer Angel. And after I went crazy for Wolfe, he took me the next summer up to see the house where Wolfe grew up in Asheville took me to the grave of Thomas Wolfe. And we were going to the, the house of Thomas Wolfe, and he'd say things in the book. He'd say, right there, Pat, that's where the boarders used to sit after dinner, and Thomas Wolfe's mother would serve them dinner. And his sister would entertain them on the piano. That's the piano she used. And we went upstairs, and there's a death scene in La Comer Angel that anytime anybody dies in my novel, I'm always trying to write a better death scene than Thomas Wolfe did about his brother, Ben Gantz. And it's one of those, I cracked up when I read it. I still cry when I read it today. 
And as Gene Norris, this great teacher, takes me to this house, he said, now, Pat, prepare yourself. There's the bed that Ben Wolf died on. Thomas Wolf's mother sat in that chair. His father sat in that chair. Thomas Wolf sat in that chair in front of the bed. And they watched Ben drown to death on his own mucus. And so I'm looking at this stuff. So we're leaving the house. I'm profoundly moved. And as we're leaving, Walter, apples were, you know, North Carolina apples. They were blooming then. He jumps up, grabs me one, and says, eat it, boy. So on the way back to Buford, I said, Mr. Norris, why are you having me eat that apple? And great English teacher Gene Norris says, because it's high time for you to know there's a relationship between art and life. And that was my English teacher when I was 15 years old. I think that particular story is interesting because when you talk about reading, you use verbs that one would talk about eating. You talk about devouring words, devouring books, making them a part of you, and particularly words. And let's, let's go back to Wolf because clearly Thomas Wolf had a tremendous impact on you. You even talk about it yourself where, you know, I think you said you could use five silver-tongued adjectives where one Anglo-Saxon <laughs> word would suffice. And that sometimes is a complaint about Wolf. But clearly, you read this book, Gene Norris gave it to you, and I think the young people out there need to understand, you don't just skim through a book. You read it, and then you reread it, and then you reread it again, and you still read it. But initially, you read that book through three times, and that's not a short book. You know, when I tell people, young people, about reading, and for me, in reading has done this. Reading has changed my life utterly. It has changed everything about my life. Uh, because I read, I wanted to write. Because I lived and read, I wanted to write stories. Because I lived in South Carolina, I went to the Citadel, and my Lord, the Citadel, I had stories flying out at me from everywhere. And because of this, I wanted to write it down and have young kids read me the way I once read Thomas Wolfe. Uh, to me, having a high school kid, a high school senior, picking up one of my books, reading it, uh, there's no greater happiness. That, to me, is communication in a way that I dreamed about it when I was first putting a uh, pen to paper. And I know about the life-changing quality of books. And I've read hundreds that, you know, I just, I'll read them and I'll think, my God, I wish I'd written that. I wish I could have written that. And then I'll say, what can I steal from that book <laughs> that I can then put in one of my other books? Or what can I take from this uh, that will make this uh, particular thing ring in my own work? So the reading thing has been all important to me. And the writing, you know, there's something I do every year now, is the only place in the world where the Lord's Discipline can be taught is a place in Arlington, Virginia, a high school. They come down to the Citadel every year, and I go up, and they've just read the Lord's Discipline, and I go up, and I talk to them about it, take them on a tour of campus. And it is heaven for me. It is absolutely, unbelievably heavenly. Uh, what about your roommates? Where are they now? What is true? What is not true? And that's always, you know, one of the things in a novel that I always love. And I've learned the not true. Here's, here's one thing about fiction writing in South Carolina that I have learned. In my brothers, some of who are sitting here tonight, ashamed of me, horrified, they have to be, you know, listen to these stories once more. But my brothers have told me that over the years, they have met at least 75 roommates that I've had at the Citadel. <laughs> <laughs> and I've even met them. 
and I, you know, I had, the last time it happened was about 10 years ago, uh, this young woman and her two young children came up to me and said, now we will know the truth at last. My husband claimed he was your roommate at the Citadel. Okay, if you have two young children and you were my roommate at the Citadel, you're dealing with trophy wives, okay? This is not, this is not physically possible for men and women my age. So I look at this poor young man, fully 20 years younger than me, and he's being horrified, his children are looking, you know, and, and he's been caught, and he said, there he is. He's turned around in shame, you know, he's, he's, you know, his back to me. So I stand up and I say, Rumi. <laughs> so he turns around and he comes roaring over and we, we hug, you know, it's, uh, we, it turns out I was in his wedding, he was in my wedding, <laughs> and we're hugging, and we went, we went down to get drunk at the Ark every night, and I did not drink in college, but it is a strange way fiction deals, you know, it is a funny thing with people. And I had, you know, my, I was terrified of this book, The Death of Santini, coming out, because I'm dealing with my brothers and sisters, uh, my mother and father. Uh, not hidden in fiction, but as I saw them. And my poor brothers and sisters, they, were, they have been, uh, they've been basically very good and very kind about this. And you are interviewing several of us tomorrow. Yes, we will, we will do that. This program will later be aired on Walter Edgar's Journal on ETV Radio, and probably the only time that all of the Conroy siblings, except for Carol, Carol, gathered in one room to talk about Santini. The first and maybe the only time will be tomorrow morning. We'll also air that on Walter Edgar's journal. So uh, any special precautions I need to take? Yes, you need. here's one special precaution. You will find me a lot smarter, nicer, much grander a personality, uh, much smoother, and much more charming than you will any of my sorry brothers and sisters. <laughs> yes, but... And it has been a burden on me my entire life. <laughs> yes, but, but Pat, when the great Santini was on his deathbed, the only person he said that he loved was your brother-in-law, Bobby Joe. My father, my father, he was... You know, this was my poor sister Carol is a poet in New York. So when Dad died, like when Mom died, we wanted the Conroy kids wanted to do it right. You know, we wanted to send them out right. You know, we as a family had suffered. Uh, these people had made us. We were all crazy. We've all been insane asylums for most of our life, hanging by our feet like monkeys. But when the end came, we wanted to do it correctly. So we split times up, and Dad was dying in my sister's house, this, my sister Kathy. Carol came down from New York, and um, I was relieving her one morning. And as I drive up to the room where Dad is dying, I hear Carol screaming at my father, screaming, Dad, Dad, you got to tell me you love me, Dad. You got to tell me you're proud of me, Dad. You just got to before you die. You got to do it. So I rush in, and she is screaming over and over again, tell me you love me. Tell me you love me. Tell me you're proud of me. So I grab Carol. This is the oldest brother, and you know that my brother Mike, he says birth order is the most important thing in family. And, of course, because I'm number one, I'm loathed and hated by my younger siblings. But I go in to get Carol, and she's screaming at Dad. I said, Carol, conference with the eldest, the, the tribal leader. <laughs> so I get her out, and Walter, she's crying. She's upset. It's horrible. She's weeping, sobbing. And I said, Carol, one thing I want to tell you is Dad is dying. He's not going deaf. <laughs> And you don't have to scream at him. You know, he, he can hear you very well. And she is just beside herself, and she's going, 
Pat, Pat, he's never told me he loved me his whole life. He's never told me he's proud of me. I've made it as a poet in New York. It's so hard. It's so hard to make it as a poet. I've done it. And he's never told me he's proud of me at all or, you know, he loves me at all. I just, he's got to do it before he dies. And she's crying and weeping, and she says, has he ever told you he loves you or he's proud of you, Pat? I said, well, now that you mention it, for the last 30 years, my phone has rang at 10 o'clock every morning. And his dad. And she says, what does he say? And I said, Pat, have I ever told you how much I loved you? <laughs> have I ever told you how proud I am of you? And the works you've done and the things you've accomplished. Have I ever just told you this, the whole thing? But my love is so extraordinary for you. My pride, I burst with pride for you. And I said, then he said, I only wish I felt the same way about Carol. <laughs> so Carol is apoplectic. She's out of her mind. And I said, Carol, I'm joking, all right? Of course, Dad has never said he loved me. Of course, he's never said he's proud of me. I have no idea if he's read a word. I don't know if he knows I'm a writer. I don't know anything about it, but that's not Bill Cosby dying in there. You know, that's the great Santini. We have to translate how he has loved us. And we, we can do that. All right, so we go back in, and I calm her down. Dad's going to be dead in two days, by the way. I mean, he is, you know, his voice is so weak by this time. So we go back in. Carol holds one hand, I hold the other. And, and then my redneck brother-in-law, Bobby Joe Harvey, comes in early. And see, I ain't got to explain to South Carolina what redneck is. I, you know, I was in North Dakota once and told this story. Nothing, just nothing. But Bobby Joe comes in, and he's doing something like rednecks do, like cleaning a wrench. And he's just, he's cleaning that wrench. He's coming in. And he walks by us. And he says to me, he says, hey, college boy. I say, hey, Bobby Joe, how you doing? Hey, college girl. Hey, Bobby Joe, Carol says. And then he says to my father, he says, Hey, old man, how you doing? And my father says, in my whole history of the Conroy family, it can be summed up by my father saying, two days before he died, I love you, Bobby Joe. <laughs> I'm proud of you, Bobby Joe. <laughs> And I had to stop my sister going for his throat. <laughs> and I think she, if she had made it, that would have been it. That would have been, you know, the end of the... That would have been the death of Santini right there. But that's the way he was your whole life? I, you know, I think the Conways can't do anything without it being a production. Um, you know, a grandfather died, and it's up in the hills, and... It's, you know, it's a snake handling family. It was, you know, the serious South. And uh, I'm watching them, and they have the open casket, and they're going by. And my Aunt Lillian says, um, I can't let him go. I can't let Cicero go. And these women in white say, you got to let him go. Lillian just got, I can't let him go. I just can't let him go. Next thing I know, she leaps in with him. And I see a little 80-year-old leg going over, and she's on top of him. It started something where if you love Cicero, you went in with him. So by the time I got there, Cicero looked like he'd been dead for about three years <laughs> in this thing. But it is the way of the Conroys. It is always melodrama. It is too much of too much, and it is never what we hope it's going to be. You talk a lot about your mother's family, but your father's family from Chicago, they could not have been more 
different from one another. I mean, you've got some really battling genes in your body. I mean, you've got Irish folks from Chicago, very old-fashioned Catholic, and then you've got the Peaks, your mama's family. Yes. It's been, it was a disastrous marriage. Mom hated dad's people, just hated them. Thought they were crass, crude. They were nice enough to hate us because we were Southern. And we would go to Chicago and they'd go, Hey, Peg, how y'all doing? You and your little redneck children want us to cook you some grits or some Aunt Jemima pancakes? And my mother would take that for about a half hour, and she'd be back in the car, and we would be heading down to South Carolina or Georgia again. It just never worked. They could never forget it or leave it. And I think they have been most critical of the death of Santini. Mm -hmm. One of the characters that really comes out, not until your last one, the death of the great Santini, is your mother's mother. Talk about an incredible grandma. I think you need to talk about your mother's mother. Yes. You asked me before about that couple, the beautiful couple from Atlanta. That if they read The Prince of Tides, I had this guy come up and, um, and his wife. And you've seen this in South Carolina a million times. A couple of you are these people. And, you know, the guy was like president of K.A., in his fraternity in Carolina. And you know what I mean? He has eyes like, you know, hair like Palomino, and he's got these Weimaraner eyes, and he's, you know, he's got a name like, you know, Prelo Chastain. <laughs> and so he walks up to the table, and he's married to this perfectly beautiful woman who is president of Tri-Delt. So I remember, okay. you know... And it, it looked like a fusion of gods and goddesses. So he's sitting there, and he can't help it. He's read The Prince of Tides, and he says, Hey, Conroy, I have finished your book, and you've got to admit, your family's nuts, aren't they? I said, Yes, I do. I you know, admit that very cheerfully. And then something about the guy irritated me, and I said, uh, How's your family, pal? And then it suddenly, oh, my family is glorious. Uh, you know, it came over in the Mayflower. And, you know, there were governors of South Carolina and Georgia and senators and people. That, and I said, that's great. Okay, let's get by all that. How far, and you all can play this right now, South Carolina. How far do I have to go till I get to the first crazy in your family. <laughs> and you gotta be truthful in this one, okay? You can't, you know. Now help them out. Dad, mom, brother, sister, aunt, uncle. Okay, anybody not getting any hits off a couple of those? So, anyway, as I'm saying this to Chastain Prelo or Prelo Chastain, his wife finally breaks, this beautiful girl finally breaks, and she says, his mother's nuts! (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and this is what I found when I go around in my, here, in my poor mother, why I could never talk about Stanny, her mother, my grandmother, when mom was still alive, is mom simply denied this. And Stanny was <laughs> born up in the mountains of Alabama, third grader. She told me she got married when she was 11. And I remember when I was a little boy, she said, I wasn't even a woman yet. And I'm thinking, my God. And I have no idea what that meant. But Stanny ended up getting married, we think, nine times. There have been guesses as much as 12. And when I first got a divorce, I remember telling Stanny I was getting divorced, she says, 
You know, I've never believed in divorce. I've always believed in the sanctity of marriage. <laughs> and I said, funny you would say that, Stanny. Uh, you believe in its sanctity at least 10 times that I've counted. <laughs> and she said, men just love me. They came to me like bees to a flower. And so I always found this, you know, utterly fascinating. And my sister Carol with my mother, dad was in Vietnam. And this is the kind of thing that to me is, you know, you find out who you are as a family. And so Carol, she's a, a Winthrop grad, fairest flower of the South. And we're down, and I am... I have just gotten fired from the Fusky Island. So there was all this. Dad's in Vietnam. And the next day, we're getting a picture taken to send to Dad in Vietnam. So my brother said it was the 70s. It's in the, if you look at the death of Santini, look at the picture in there, and you'll see what is wrong with the 70s, as you see how my brothers are dressed. And... So we're all in there, but Carol, the night before we're going to have the photograph, she comes in. My grandmother's there, Stanny. And Carol says, I'm about to make an announcement. And um, you know, I'm thinking, okay. And Carol is always, uh, she's the family poet and the family drama queen. And she says, I'm announcing to the family that Chris and I are lesbian lovers. So this is 1971, kids, so you know the time frame. Okay, my little four- and three-year-old daughters are there. Everybody in the family is there. My brothers and sisters are there. And then my mother drops on the floor, screaming and crying, and says, I knew it, I knew it. I'll never be a grandmother now. <laughs> And I said, Mom, stand up, introduce yourself to my two daughters. <laughs> and I always knew this. And, you know, this, is, this was your father's fault. <laughs> and in a Conroy family, it has to escalate in this way. And my mother says, I can never accept it. And Carol's screaming, you must accept it. I am your daughter. This is the love of my life. And my little daughter's saying, Dad, what is a lesbian? <laughs> and my, Stanny is on the side. Stanny is over there. My grandmother, been married 10 times. She said, she's no lesbian. I've been around the world 10 times. I've met lots of lesbians. And then Stanny says one thing, ladies and gentlemen, and this is where my confusion as a human being and my confusion as a writer will always reside. There's one thing said I don't get. Stanny kept saying over and over again, Carol, you've never even been to Beirut. It took me two years <laughs> to realize that Stanny thought Carol was declaring herself from Lebanon. <laughs> but but Stanny represents something, Walter, that you caught in this. There is always one breakout figure from all of our family. Stanley was it in my lifetime. I had never seen or heard of anything like, even after she died, they were showing real pictures of her, and we're seeing her, and my Uncle Joe is doing soundtrack. It was early. He thought he was going to go into film. But he says, here we are in Jacksonville, my hometown. Yes, we're at the beach. Here we call it Jacksonville Beach. <laughs> that's my wife, and that's my wife's mother, Stanny.
And Stanny is sitting there. She must be 70 years old, holding hands with a man 28 years old. <laughs> and Uncle Joe is saying, they just got married last week. <laughs> yes, there is an age differential, but they, they seem to be getting along very, very well. But this is all part and to add this with South Carolina and the stories I've heard from y'all, I could have no richer life. It, I don't think it exists in American fiction. I just don't. That's why I write history in this state. I don't have to make it up. <laughs> Let's get back to your writing, and I think particularly to the influence of Jean Norris in all of your writing and all of your comments and ever since I've known you, this man, this good, this great teacher had such an impact on you. You fell in love with Thomas Wolfe, and then you began to write him very flowery essays, and so then he gave you The Sun Also Rises. That's right. It, Gene was one of these magnificent teachers. And if there's any English teachers or any teachers at all in this audience, I fell in love with teachers. And if there are any students in this thing, here's what I found out about teachers. You can fall in love with them in the classrooms you go through in high school. And I simply fell in love with my teachers. You know, I fell in love with Bill Dufford, who was my principal, because I wanted to be a man like that. And I wanted to walk downtown in Buford and have people look at me with the same respect they had for Bill Dufford. Gene Norris, I wanted to be a man that thought the way he did. Uh, Gene Norris, I come here in 1961. Do you know who Gene Norris introduced me to in 1962? Martin Luther King. You ever met a white boy who met Martin Luther King in 1962? And it was at Penn Center. Gene Norris took me up to meet um, the poet Lloyd Archibald Rutledge. He knows I want to be a writer then. And he has me dress up in a coat and tie. And um, we have a basketball game in Myrtle Beach. And on the way back, he says, okay, now I'm introducing you to this poet. He's the poet laureate of South Carolina. He lives on a plantation. And... I've told him I called, and he's going to take you around. This is a teacher. I'm 16 years old. So this is his free time. This is Saturday. He takes me to this thing, and this elegant man answers the door. And I've always wanted to look this. You know, Conroy doesn't look elegant. You know, duh. Archibald Rutledge takes me, and he says, I hear you want to be a writer, young man. I said, yes, sir, I really do. He takes me up to his writing desk. He shows me what he's working on, and it was a poem. He hands it to me, asked me to read it, and said, is there any word you would change? I'm thinking. And he said, really, read it carefully. So I said, one word, maybe this word could be stronger. He said, thank you very much. I'll consider that. He walked me all over the plantation, and he said, notice the details. This is where the bucks sharpen their antlers on Cypress' knees. And over here is where Francis Marion ran from the British and swam across to one of my relatives' house to escape them during the Revolutionary War. And so I'm completely floored by this. He serves me tea. It's terrific. You say goodbye. And I get in the car. I'm thrilled. Yeah, I mean the great writer, and I am thrilled. I've never been a writer in my life. And so Gene, as we're driving off, he said, okay, what did you learn from that visit? I said, I learned to notice all the details. I learned to notice, you know, when, you know, things that are around me in nature, to make sure I get the details right. You know, I learned where <laughs> Francis Marion escaped from the British, and he said, if that's all you learned, you didn't learn anything. I said, what are you talking about, Mr. Norris? 
I just told you everything he said. He said, no, no, you're not as smart as I thought you were. You're not as good a student as I thought you were. What you should have learned, if you ever become a writer yourself, you now know how to treat a 16-year-old kid in South Carolina who wants to be a writer like you. And I still remember. Genius had me calling up kids all over South Carolina when they, had, they were doing papers on me. I said, Gene, I don't want to do it. Well, I know of a little 15-year-old boy. He sure would have loved it if a writer had called him. What's the number, Gene? <laughs> but it was that kind of teaching. And because of Gene, I learned this. He, you know, Gene and I were best friends our entire lives. I didn't know he was a teacher's best friend. But Gene was just like me, needed friends. And here's how close we became. I was one of the executors of Gene Norris's will. And you can become that good of friends with somebody who taught you to love literature when you were a boy and came into their classroom. Well, yeah. I'd like to share with folks a story about Pat Conroy that a lot of folks don't know, because I've known you for a long time. You were classmates of a very good friend of mine, Gene Brooker, who's no longer with us. And Gene was a Citadel cadet, classmate of, of Pat's. And as a very young man, he was struck down with Ginsberet. He was over here in the hospital for 18 months. Pat was making movies. Pat came to Columbia any number of times to sit by the bed of his friend and read. Now, if you're making Hollywood movies, this is a public relations bonanza. Classmate rushes to the bedside of a seriously ill friend. Never a word to the press. But on a regular basis, this man came up here and sat by the bedside of his dear friend and read to him and then went back about his business. And I think that tells you what kind of man Pat Conroy is. Well, Pat, tell us a story. That's what you say. That's the secret. I think your mother wanted you to be a Southern writer. That, I would say, is still what sets Southern writers off from everybody else. You have a story to tell. So is there anything left in there that you'd like to share with our audience tonight? You know, because of the thing about family, and because of the Southern family is what has always been fed, it seems like the basis of everything. Um, you know, love, hatred. But to me, basically, when I come down to it, it seems like family is a love story. It takes a long time getting told or a long time getting understood. The biggest shock I've had on this book tour with the death of Santini are men and women coming up to me and saying, my mother was a great Santini. I always say, I don't think I could have survived that. I don't think it is possible for me to survive that. If my mother had been that way, uh, I don't know how I'd have gotten through that childhood. But, you know, what I do love is this thing that, you know, like our family talking to you tomorrow. Mm. You know, we've been through a lot. Uh, my family's been through movies now. I hope there's one that's going to get made of the death of Santini because I want the people who play my brothers and sisters who are on that show, The Undead. Have you all seen that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> And, you know, I'd like to see these zombie-like creatures play my brother, where I play a very handsome, elegant uh, young man who makes sense of the world. But, you know, what I loved when my father died, and I did, I loved this. You know, we went to church. We knew it was going to be horrible. We knew in some ways it was going to be awful. And 
there, there was tension always because my sister wanted to have a poem for dad and I wanted to read a um, eulogy. And Carol would always torture me this way. And she did a couple of nights before the funeral. And the way she tortured me was this. Pat, I'm going to write a poem. You will write prose. And you and I both know that prose is far inferior to poetry. And I will read my poetry after you get finished with your crappy prose. And I said, that's fine, Carol. That's, you know, we, we did. So we all rushed down. And then Father Jim um, is a priest, his dad's brother, and we have a 300-pound mustachioed nun who is dad's sister, Sister Marge. The next day, Father Jim, the worst speaker in the history of organized religion. We desperately tried to get him not to deliver, but he comes up and he comes out and the program's printed out, we're all ready, and I will read my eulogy, then she will read her. She writes me a note and says, Pat, I will never allow these priests to tell me what to do. They are part of the patriarchy and I am against it. I am not going to read my poem until the priests are all off the altar. Okay, now the ceremony has started, the funeral has started. So I'm reading this. I've got a printed thing with where everything's supposed to go, including the priest leaving with a casket. And I'm thinking, I am now the only person besides Carol in the church that knows this. So I lean down, and it's, um, and I regret this, but I'm related to my father. And I went through the plebe system at the Citadel. So I lean down, I am completely unnerved. The only funeral of my father I've ever been to. I don't know quite how to feel. So Carol's not going to get up. She's going to sit there, and the whole church is going to be looking at her. So I Carol, give me a break. And I turn. Now, my brothers and sisters are in the audience, and half the audience saw my sister <laughs> go down on one knee and begin shooting me the bird. <laughs> and I contend this does not happen in most southern funerals. And my back is turned, or there would have been a fist fight in the first. My back is turned. So I later said, how many birds were thrown? And my brother Mike always low-keys things. And he says, I think there are only 50. <laughs> and my brother Tim always exaggerates things. He's like me. He said, I'd say 150, 200. <laughs> and I said, this rarely happens in an American funeral, but it was so typical of, you know, what happens and when I write books, I never worry about going too much, doing too much. I never, you know, I've had, you know, people tell me stories in South Carolina that I will sit and be staggered by. Simply the melodrama, the dramatics, a sister, a brother, Somebody will be in there. You know, I come here tonight. There's a man in the back who scares everybody that comes here. Uh, he says, you want a Coke? And you lift up a thing to get a Coke, and a rattlesnake springs out at you, at your face. And he said, I've scared Springsteen. I've scared Seinfeld. I've scared you. I've scared everybody that's come through here. And I said, you know, South Carolina is hard to top. <laughs> this, this guy's been scaring people with a rattlesnake for 40 years in this thing, and I didn't know it till tonight, my gosh. All right. <laughs> Pat, it's time for us to wrap up. Any last words for our audience before we sign out today? One thing that I do think, reading is still the one place you can go to be alone in a very loud and noisy 
America. And it was wonderful to see you all tonight. Thank you all very much. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. This conversation was recorded live at Township Auditorium in Columbia as part of the One Book, One Columbia reading program sponsored by the Richland Library. Discovering which writers and books made an impact on young Pat Conroy as a high school student in Beaufort, South Carolina, and as a mature writer for the last 20 years. It was a conversation that I found fascinating and energizing, and I hope you did too. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Next time on Walter Edgar's Journal, my guests will be author Pat Conroy and his siblings, Mike, Kathy, Jim, and Tim. And we'll talk about what it was like growing up with the great Santini. You know, we thought all families were like that. You know, we thought all families moved every year or twice a year. We had no other family to compare it with. Yeah, I didn't know that everybody wasn't going home after school getting beaten up. I just thought, you know, that's what a kid did. You know, you know, finished school, said goodbye to everybody on the bus. Surely you had childhood chums y'all didn't talk about. Well, I got... There were other military well, kids. Yeah, yeah. and also... You know, we moved our, every year. Our childhood chums were we moved to a new city. It takes a while to you know, develop you friends. You can't get a chum right away. It took me a long time to make friends, and then we consistently moved every nine months. So, you know, I didn't spend the night with somebody until I was a junior in high school. I never would have anybody spend the night with me because I didn't want to be thrown to a plate glass window by Dad. Join me for Walter Edgar's Journal, a production of ETV Radio, Friday at noon. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed by the guests on Walter Edgar's Journal are their own and are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.